Well, good evening. Good to see all of you. Welcome to our study of Revelation. Hope that you're having a good week and everything's going good. Good to see a good group here. And I know we always have a good group online uh, studying God's Word with us. So we welcome wherever you are and however you may be joining us tonight. And welcome to those here as well. So, well, we're to Revelation chapter 10 and we're looking, it's a shorter chapter tonight, only 11 verses. <clears throat> kind of interesting where it falls and what God tells us uh, through this chapter. So, glad that you're here to study God's Word with us. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your Word together. Father, thank you for how powerful your Word is. Just the first nine chapters we've already read and studied of Revelation. It's incredible what you've told us. And God, knowing that you're in control, even what's going to happen in the end, at the end, Lord, we, we see even your sovereignty and, and your grace and goodness to believers even through that. God, I pray tonight that you'd be the, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher as we go through chapter 10 and that, God, you'd show us exactly what you want us to know. Help us to live in light of your coming. God, help us to be uh, faithful to you in all that we do, faithful to pray, faithful to witness and to read your word and just to be the people you want us to be. Lord, thank you for everyone who's joined us tonight, whether virtually or here in person. I pray your blessings upon them. And may you honor our time together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Revelation chapter 10, I'm of course in the ESV. I'll tell you that from time to time, but maybe you're joining us new tonight and don't know what version we're in. The English Standard Version is what I'm, I'm reading from. And first of all, let's recap. If you notice the letter A on your outline tonight, by the way, as far as the outlines go, you can scan those with the QR code as soon as you walk in, or you can go to our website, go to media, and you'll see the Wednesday night Bible study notes on there. But our, first of all, a recap of uh, where we are. Of course, the word uh, revelation mean, is the word apocalypse, uh, which a Greek word apocalypsis, which uh, literally means to unveil something that has previously been hidden. Uh, written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. You remember what those churches are? Can you name some of them? Well, wonderful. Let's start over again. Then, uh, can you, I think I heard Sardis. Philadelphia, exactly right. There's uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Sardis. You're exactly right. Those are the seven churches to Asia Minor, which is in the current country of Turkey. John wrote the Revelation. He was a disciple of Jesus. If you remember, he was the one at the cross that Jesus said, John, take care of my mother. And uh, he lived longer than the other disciples. A lot of theologians believe the reason why that he lived longer is because that he was taking care of, of Mary and God allowed him to live longer because he was taking care of the Lord's mother. Possible, we don't know why, but he did live longer than the other disciples. Uh, not in the area of Israel, but moved to, Greek, uh, to uh, Turkey uh, and uh, that region there of Asia Minor. Ephesus is where they were and lived, uh, some people say, died of old age, which make him the only disciple who actually did not die a martyr's death. Others say he was martyred. He was attempted uh, to be martyred at one time. It didn't succeed there in Ephesus. And then some theologians say lived to be in old age and died as an older man. And God allowed him to live out his days. But we do know... He was on the island of Patmos around the year 90 A.D. Domitian was in control of the Roman Empire. He was the Roman emperor. He hated Christianity. He had a complex where he wanted to be worshipped as God. And so he, he persecuted Christianity as much as he could. 
Nero, of course, uh, was intensely persecuted uh, Christianity as well. Domitian ratcheted it up a notch, and so it was even worse under Domitian. So around 90 AD, some of the worst persecution of believers. So you can see how a book like this would be encouraging if you're being persecuted, if some of your church members are being beheaded for their faith. You can see how encouraging it would be to hear that one day God is going to make everything right and good is going to triumph over evil. That would be a message that would really resonate with you, and that's part of the reason that Revelation was given. Remember now, it's a series of, of visions. John sees more than 60 different visions and more than 350 references to the Old Testament. We're going to see the Old Testament tonight keep coming up in chapter 10. But there is a strong connection between the Old Testament and Revelation. Of course, those reading Revelation would have known the Old Testament uh, very well, and so they would have gotten all these references. So more than 350 references to the Old Testament. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, that's where the letters to the seven churches uh, are, are located. Chapter 4, there's a vision of the throne room of heaven. God is sitting on the throne and then uh, being worshipped. And then chapter 5, there is a scroll that is uh, handed out. Jesus is the only one worthy to take the scroll, break the seals. And then, of course, whenever he did so, that set in motion seven seals that, uh, of judgments upon the earth of things that would happen here on the earth. Earthquakes, uh, different things like that from the seven sealed judgments. The final of the seven seals, you open it up and that, there were seven trumpets. So you get to the seventh seal and there were seven trumpets. Well, that's where we picked up then uh, three weeks ago, three sessions ago, beginning in chapter 6 of Revelation where the seven seals are broken and the seven trumpet blasts start to uh, blare out. If you look at letter B on your outline, let's review the seven trumpets starting in chapter 8. We're told about those. And then you remember the first trumpet, it was blown uh, and there was a plague on the vegetation uh, hail, uh, fire, blood, all mixed together, and one-third of the earth's vegetation is destroyed. You can imagine how that would affect the food chain. Food would become scarce. Famines would grow worse because the food chain's affected when one-third of the earth is the vegetation is gone. And then the second trumpet blast, there was a plague upon the sea, upon the ocean. A great mountain goes into the water, hits the, in the water, and a third of all the oceans everywhere turn blood to blood red. Uh, the great mountain, some people think uh, either maybe it's a nuclear uh, bomb or it's a meteor or an asteroid. We don't know, but a, the great blazing mountain that's described in chapter 8, verses 8 and 9 describes something that could be like an asteroid. That's what most theologians think was probably going to happen. Asteroid will hit the earth. This is all during the Great Tribulation then, and a third of the earth, well, the, uh, the water, the sea, will turn to blood. Third trumpet blast, a plague on the fresh waters, verses 10 and 11. There's a blazing torch. Again, that sounds like something from the heavens, meteor or a comet or something that hits the earth, something blazing from the heavens, a blazing torch, and one-third of the fresh waters now are affected, and they turn bitter where you can't drink them. Imagine worldwide what would happen tonight if one-third of all the fresh water uh, is gone. You can see how some people are going to, to, to die of thirst. 
uh, and how that's going to happen. Already there are people in some portions dying of thirst and uh, organizations going like Baptist uh, Men of Texas that go and dig water wells even now. But if you imagine taking one-third of the water that's there, that's all we already have, the fresh water that's gone, how that would affect our, our world as well. Then the fourth trumpet blast, a plague on the heavens and darkness. There will be one-third less light. Imagine that the sun starts shining one-third less brightly, uh, the, the, the coal that's going to hit. Uh, you can imagine all that's going to take place. And a lot of people believe that the cosmic debris in the air from all these other trumpet blasts will be what causes the sun to darken because of all the cosmic debris in the air. That's the fourth trumpet blast. That's the plague on the heavens and the darkness. Then we get to the fifth and the sixth trumpets, letter C on your outline. This is where it even gets worse because now you have the spiritual world, the demonic world that is unleashed upon the earth. Not just asteroids and comets and vegetation and, and food chains. Now all of a sudden you actually have physical things happening to our bodies that are caused by demons and the demonic from the underworld. Uh, we saw last week where there is a super maximum security prison for demons called the abyss that's described in the Old Testament and the New Testament both uh, of how the worst of the demons are there. There are demons that are loose today, but the worst of the worst, as they fell from heaven, one-third of them went to a place called the abyss. They're not unleashed yet. And so those are the ones in maximum security, and those are the ones that the, uh, the star fell from heaven, to, had the key to the abyss, unlocked it, and these super bad demons are released upon the earth. That is the fifth trumpet blast. They'll uh, attack humans. Uh, they'll cause uh, such severe pain. Humans wish they will die. Uh, and then the sixth trumpet blast we saw last week, the four angels beyond the Euphrates are released. There are four military leaders in the area around the Euphrates. We talked about that, how the Euphrates River has always played a key role in the Bible. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden was around the Euphrates. Uh, the first sin was around the Euphrates River. Uh, the first dictatorship arose around the Euphrates. And how it's always played a key role. And now at the end time, the Euphrates once again will be in, in, involved. Four key military leaders who are demonically um, oppressed will rise up, lead an army of 200 million that will attack the earth. And of course, that's when God's forces are assembled as well. So around the, of course, you have Afghanistan, you have Iran, you have Iraq, uh, you have Pakistan, all around, immediately around the region of the Euphrates River. So we do know, we don't know what countries, but we do know that the Middle East is going to be heavily involved whenever this ta the end takes place. So we've made it through six trumpet blasts now, and we're waiting on the seventh. If the first six are this bad, what on earth is the seventh trumpet blast going to be like? Well, that's what we're going to talk about here in just a moment. Before we do, I want to remind you again by way of reminding you of the principles of the book. I always want to mention these because they're so important to understand what Revelation says and what Revelation does not say. Remember the first principle we talked about, exegete, don't eisegete. And remember, exegesis is to draw out what's already there Eisegesis is to read into something that's not there that you believe or somebody else believe or a preacher said or a book said or something you think 
Don't just think what you think and read it into Scripture. You're going to wind up making it say something it never meant to say. So take what's written, what God has given to us, and exegete it out, draw it out. Don't read anything into the passage. That's the first principle. Second principle, don't get caught up in all the symbols. If you get all caught up in all the sevens and all the 666s and the 144,000s and all of those numbers and symbols, you're going to miss the message of the book. You're going to miss Jesus. You're going to get caught up in all of this. And I know a ton of people that are all caught up in all of these numbers. And, and you're missing the point of the book. So that's the second principle. And third principle is if a passage can be taken literally and it makes sense, take it literally. Don't try to see symbolism in every single passage. You're going to misinterpret it. Now, if a passage is there that's obviously not literal, then it's symbolic. But if it can be taken literally, it should be taken literally. That's the way that you understand the book, I believe, in the greatest way. Don't try to see hidden messages in every single word of the book. Take it literally for what it says, unless it's obviously not meant to be literal. So, those are three, uh, I think, principles that will help you not to misinterpret Revelation and will help you to interpret it and, and, and draw out what God's already told us. That's what I want to know. I don't want to know what a preacher or a book says about Revelation. I want to know what God says about Revelation. And so that's the best way to determine that is to exegete what's in there and to go by those principles. Okay, we've covered that. I wanted to remind you of it again. But let's go to chapter 10 now, letter uh, D on your outline, an interlude before the seventh trumpet. So, we're now about one half of the way through the seven-year tribulation. The seven-year tribulation is going to take place before the end comes. Now, there are all kinds of theories. Where does Jesus come in these seven years? Is there a rapture that's going to happen in those seven years? What about us as believers? Are we going to have to go through these tribulations? Or are we already going to be in heaven? And there are several theories. One theory is at the beginning of the seven years, we're all raptured away and none of the Christians are here. It's one theory. Second theory is one half of the way through the seven-year tribulation at the three-and-a-half-year mark, that's when we're taken away, which would put us exactly where we are tonight. Or the third theory is uh, that whenever you're uh, at the end of the tribulation time, that's whenever we'll have to go through all of it as believers, but at the end of it, then that's when we're taken to heaven to be with the Lord. So, all kind of theories. But seven years of great tribulation upon the earth, and right now in chapter 10, we're just about at the one and a half year mark, or three and a half year mark, halfway through the great seven year tribulation. So, after the sixth trumpet, you would expect, expect the seventh trumpet to blow and judgments conclude. But that's not what happened. Go back a little bit. You remember the seals before we even got to the trumpets? When the seventh seal was opened, you would expect the judgments to end. But that's not what happened, right? We had seven more trumpets of judgments. So you'd expect now with the seventh trumpet, judgments will end. But that's not what happens. We have more. Maybe just a way, and I'll talk more about this next session in chapter 11 because it's more prevalent there, but maybe it's just a way of God telling us His judgment never ends until it's all over and we're ushered into God's presence and 
evil is chained for good. Maybe it's his way of telling us it's, there's never a conclusion to it until it's finally all over. So here we are between six and seven. Now go back to the six seals, uh, if you, the seven seals. If you remember between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was an interlude, a pause. It's kind of like a dramatic pause. It's kind of like um, you're waiting to get to the seventh point and the seventh point's going to be dramatic and you pause for a moment where everybody's on the edge of their seat. That's what happened with the seals. Now we get to the trumpets and between six and seven, there's a pause. You're waiting and you're waiting. What's this seventh trumpet going to bring forth? And so you're waiting and you're waiting and all of chapter 10 is awaiting We don't get to the seventh trumpet until chapter 11, verse 15, which is next Wednesday night. So tonight is all just on the edge of your seat waiting for that seventh trumpet to sound. So what happens while you're waiting? Well, John sees something in heaven that's pretty dramatic. And so this is the interlude between the sixth and the seventh that we're going to see for a moment. God pauses for a moment the outpouring of his wrath upon humanity. So let's start looking at verse, uh, first of all, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. So we're going to see on your outline, letter A, the mighty angel, verses 1 through 7. Who's the angel? Jesus? Maybe. Because it did say in Revelation 1, verses 15 and 16, his face shone like the sun, like our description here. But I don't think it's Jesus because of something that happens here in just a moment. So, most likely, it's probably not Jesus. By the way, nowhere in Revelation or nowhere in the entire New Testament is is Jesus called an angel. They're two different beings. Jesus the greater, obviously God himself, and he's never called an angel in the New Testament. So, why would he be an angel here? Now, in the Old Testament, he is called an angel. If you ever see a passage... And there are a few of them in there in the Old Testament where it says the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus. It's a theophany of Christ. If it says an angel of the Lord, it's just an angel. But if it says the angel of the Lord, it's Christ. And then it's theophany. So, but in the New Testament, Jesus is never called an angel. So, probably what John saw was not Jesus, but a mighty angel. Now, there were ranks of angels. Did you know that? The New Testament teaches that. There's there's archangel and and, and there's an irregular angel. So, you have ranks. And so, a mighty angel probably would have been a rank. And the only two by name that we know in the Bible are Gabriel and Michael. Absolutely. So, it could have been Gabriel or Michael. The mighty angels, probably one of them. Now, you remember, let's stop for a moment. Remember last Sunday morning, I preached in Daniel. And Daniel saw a vision of the angel, and it's just a regular angel. And it was so 
awe-inspiring. He fell to the ground and had no strength. And the angel touched him and he got up and he fell back down and couldn't speak. And he was so awe-inspiring, the angel touched him again. And a third time he got up and he collapsed. That's what humanity's like just before a regular angel. So John sees one of the angel bosses, one of the mighty angels. So keep that in mind. And he describes it. I, I saw him coming down from heaven. So remember, John's been in heaven himself. So if he's coming down from heaven, now all of a sudden John's on earth again. So chapter 10, in the interlude, he's not in heaven, he's on earth seeing it. And he sees coming down from heaven a mighty angel. And the angel is wrapped in a cloud, like a mantle. And his head, around his head is a rainbow, so he's got a headdress of a rainbow. And his face is shining like the sun, and his legs are pillars of fire. Let's stop for a moment. All four of those images, the mantle, the cloud, the headdress, the rainbow, uh, the sun, and the pillar of fire are all in the Old Testament, right? All references to the Old Testament. You remember the mantle, Elijah and Elisha, and the mantle that falls from heaven to show him he has power, double power, a double portion. And you have the rainbow that God put in the clouds to show his faithfulness. And, and then you have the sun that stood still whenever Gideon won a battle to show God's divine power. And then the pillars of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness, cloud during the day and pillars of fire at night. And so you have all figures from the Old Testament wrapped up in this, in this one angel that comes down to the earth. Go to verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So, let's get a picture of this. He looks and he sees this angel, and holding in probably his left hand, as we're going to see in a moment, he raises his right hand, He's probably holding in his left hand a little scroll. Go back to chapter 5. That's where God hands out a scroll. It's not little. It's a large scroll. And Jesus is the only one worthy to take it. Now the angel is carrying a little scroll. Bibliorideon, which meant diminutive book. So what's this little scroll? Is it the same one Jesus took in chapter 5? No, probably not, because that's the big scroll. This is little. Some theologians say, well, it was a condensed version of that. It's the Reader's Digest version. I, I don't know. That's what some say. It was a shortened ver or abbreviated version, but I think it was a two different scrolls, a big one and a little one. And the reason I think that is this. Two different words are used. There's one word that's used, a Greek word in chapter 5 for the big scroll, and a totally different, very rare word, bibliorideon, very rare word that's used, hardly ever used in, in Greek, to mean little bitty book. Why would he be carrying a little bitty book? But he's holding it in his left hand. 
And so it said the scroll was open. So he didn't open it. It was already opened. But the word that's used there in the Greek for open is a perfect passive. What does that mean? The passive means somebody else opened it. He didn't. And the perfect tense means it stayed open and remained open. So somebody else opened it. And nobody could shut it. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? He was the only one worthy to open the first one. So we're not told that, but most likely Jesus opened the second smaller book because somebody else did it other than the angel and it stayed open and nobody could shut it. So he comes down, he's holding a scroll in his left hand. He puts his right foot on the oceans and his left foot on the land. Why, why would he do that? Well, the stance implies authority. He's Lord of the sea and he's Lord of the land. What else is there on earth? Sea and land. Some theologians say, well, it's talking, it's symbolic of him calming the sea. You don't really get that in the, in the, in the grammar that's used. What you get is authority. That, that the angel has all authority over what's taking place. Now, now, stop for a moment and think through this. It's a way of saying God, in chapter 10, has everything under control. The entire world is still under his authority and still under his control. Why would they doubt that? Well, look what's happened. Now, I mean, you have, you have seven seals and you have six trumpets that have unleashed everything upon the earth. And you have demons running around out of maximum security prisons. And it looks like chaos. And it looks like God is not in control. But just at the moment, you don't think he is. An angel comes down and puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the land to show, I've got this, it's mine. Because anytime in Scripture something is under your feet, it means you have a control or authority over it. So just as a reminder, when you think everything's chaos is broken loose and God can't handle it anymore, that's when he reminds you through the angel, I've got this under control. You know, maybe you need that lesson in your life tonight. Maybe things are out of control in your life, and chaos, and you think, oh my goodness, it doesn't look like God's anywhere to be found. Oh, he is. He's still in control. And you know, you look at the world, and I, I, I hear people saying, oh, pastor, you know, things are just getting so bad. I tell you what, I don't see how God can tarry much longer. And I agree with you. Things are a lot worse than when I first started in ministry around the world and in, in America and in our culture. But don't think for a moment just because things are the way they are that God's not in control. He is. He always will be. So, don't think he's not just because you think, oh my goodness, look at the laws being passed. Look who's in control. Look what they're doing. Look what, here, look what they're doing. They're taking God out of this and God out of that. Don't think for a moment he's not got this. He does. So, just a reminder, one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. In the midst of all the chaos, the angel shows God still has it in control. Go to verse 3. And the angel called out with a loud voice, like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. 
You know what the Greek word is for loud voice? It's only one Greek word. Megaphone. The word for sound is phone or phone, is how you pronounce it in Greek. Mega, it was plural, megas. Uh, and so a megaphone is the Greek word that's used here. Call out with a loud voice, the angel did. And it was like the roaring of a lion. Now let's stop that for a moment. The loud voice crying out. First of all, a loud voice, Psalm 29, seven times, uses the exact same phrase. So another reference to the Old Testament, Psalm 29. But let's talk about the lion for a moment. A lion's roar is um, 114 decibels. That is louder than a rock concert. That's 110 decibels. Jet plane taking off is 120 decibels, so the roar of a lion is almost as loud as a jet plane taking off. And you can hear it for up to five miles. Lions only roar twice, supposedly. I've never researched this. They roar when you're approaching their pride, which is their, their, their group, or when they're about to hunt. And they hunt at night. So you hear a roar, either they feel threatened because somebody's coming in, or they're about to go on the prowl and they're about to hunt. I find it fascinating throughout the Old Testament that God used the analogy of a roaring lion several times with the prophets to show that God is about to roar, judgment's about to come, he's about to go on the hunt. And here now we have in the New Testament, again, the image from the angel that God is roaring and judgment is about to come. It's not because he feels threatened. It's because he's about to bring judgment. And so the angel cries out with a loud voice that sounded like the roaring of a lion. And then it said, whenever he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So the voice was so loud, it sounded like a lion, and it caused seven thunders to sound. Now, whenever you hear thunder coming, you know the storm is getting close, right? If you hear thunder in a distance, oh, it sounds like thunder. And then it gets closer, and it gets closer, and it gets closer. And when it's right on top of you, and it thunders, and you can feel it rumbling, you know the storm's just about on top of you. That's the picture. The thunderclaps, seven of them, rumble, reverberate through the earth, meaning the storm is here. Trumpet number seven is about to blow, and that's the bad one. That's when the storm gets here. So, that's the picture. By the way, you remember in John, whenever Jesus, the Father, the voice booms from heaven, and this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, it says it twice, the transfiguration and baptism. You remember John records it, and John said, those that stood by said it sounded like thunder. And here you have it again, the thunder claps, the seven ear-shattering thunder claps that came and crashed because the judgment's about to come. 
Go to verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now let's stop there for a moment, something really important. John's job in the Revelation was to write what he saw for us and for them, right? But here is one time he saw something, got his pad and pen, oh man, seven thunders, and I, I see what's about to happen. And he starts to write it down, and a voice from heaven said, stop, don't write. Don't you write this down. I don't want them to know. You mean there are things about Revelation we'll never know? Yeah. You remember during the introduction, when our very first session, I said, if you ever meet somebody who has Revelation all figured out, run. Now you know why. God himself said, I hadn't told you everything. There are seven after the seven thunderclaps. John saw it. He's going to write what he saw. Nope. Seal it up. Do not write it. Now, theologians speculate why. Was it just to keep us not knowing things? Maybe. Others say, oh, it's too scary. No, we've had some scary things so far. Others say, well, he just changed his mind on what he wanted to say. No, God didn't change his mind on what he wanted to say. So, others say, well... He's not going to give any more warnings. Well, no, that doesn't appear to be it. He gives more warnings later. So it appears that the reason he told John that is there are some things you're not going to know. Nobody will ever know all there is to know about Revelation. So let me say it again tonight. There are a lot of preachers out there that stand on Sunday mornings and a lot of preachers that preach on the internet, a lot of books being written. They got Revelation figured out. No, they don't. Because chapter 10, verse 4, God said they didn't. So beware of the charts and the books and the preachers and your friends who have Revelation all figured out. You know those people, they're experts on Revelation. They've got all figured out. They know exactly how it's going to fit together. No, they don't. There were at least seven thunderclaps John went to write down, and God said, nope, don't want, them, don't want them released. So, we will never know everything. John Wilbord said, quote, although God has revealed much to us, he's not revealed everything. Leon Morris, great New Testament theologian, said, do not proceed as though everything's been revealed to you. It hasn't. So, just to, just to let you know, nobody has this figured out because some things haven't been revealed verse 5 verses 5 and 6 and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever it's God and ever who created heaven and what is in it the earth and what's in it the sea what's in it that then that there would be no more delay now a couple of one is the phrase no more delay I'll talk about that for a second but first of all Notice the angel raised his right hand to swear. What does it sound like? Court. Absolutely. Why do we raise our right hand to swear in court? Well, supposedly, it goes back to the 17th century in our culture, to England, 
and they branded criminals on their right thumb. If you, if you were a thief, they put a, they put a T on your thumb. Yeah, you tattooed it on your thumb. If you have your murderer, put an M, whatever crime you committed. So if the judge could see that there were, you had never committed a crime, they could believe your testimony. That's what our court system says. But actually, it goes back long before 17th century in England. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the right side was the side of honor. It was a side of authority. It was a side of truthfulness, the right side. That's why Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jacob placed his right hand on his grandson Ephraim in Genesis chapter 48. And in Isaiah 62, 8, God holds his right hand up and swears. So it's a picture of authority and something being certain. Because even in our court system, when you raise your right hand, you're swearing to tell the truth. You're swearing to be honest. What you're about to say is going to be truthful. And so the angel is saying, what I'm about to say is truthful and certain. And so he's giving us the certainty of what's going to happen. And he says, there will be no more delay. What did he mean by that? Well, think about it. The seven seals earlier, there would be, the, the seal would be opened, there would be a brief time, and then the judgment. All seven seals. First six trumpets, they, they'd be blown, brief time, and then the judgment. And during that brief time, there appears to be a moment to repent, because 144,000 did. But now, with trumpet number seven, it blows, it happens, no time to repent. So most likely, whenever he says, I promise, I swear to you, there will be no more delay, no more time to get right with God when the seventh trumpet comes. It will happen immediately. And then look at verse 7. That in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Look at one word there in verse 7, the word mystery. The word mystery is very interesting. It's um, in the Bible, mystery is not something nobody knows. It's used several times in the Bible. In the Bible, the word mystery is something nobody could know unless it was revealed. So, if you can know something by studying it, it's not a biblical mystery. If you can know something by intuition, it's not a mystery. If you can know something by your efforts to dig in there and find it out, it's not a biblical mystery. A, a biblical mystery is something nobody could possibly on their own know unless God made it known, revealed it. And several times in the Bible, he uses the word mystery. For example, uh, Romans eleven twenty five, 25, it says the conversion of the Jews is a mystery. It says in Ephesians 3, God's purpose for the church is a mystery. It says in Romans eleven twenty five 25, that the Gentiles being saved is a mystery. It says in Colossians 4, 3, the gospel itself is a mystery. It says in Colossians 1, 27, the living presence of Jesus in the life of a believer is a mystery. So there are several mysteries that unless God reveals them, nobody can know what they're like or know what they mean. Your salvation is one of them. 
That's why you, you explain being saved to somebody that's lost and they, don't, they think you're crazy. They don't get it. It has to be Holy Spirit revealed. So now he's saying, in that seventh trumpet blows, the mystery will be fully known and God will reveal to all mankind who he is and what he's doing. The Old Testament prophets had a partial mystery, it said, partial fulfillment. But this, the last time, there will be total fulfillment. Let's go to the last section. We'll close verses 8 through 11. The little scroll, letter B on your outline. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. Now think about this for a moment. John's standing there, and now John, it's like John's always been in the corner observing. Now he's pushed out to the middle, and he's a participant. He's probably going, Hi, wait, 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 I just, I'm just here to observe and write. But now he participates. And the angel told him, John, go, or rather, uh, the voice said uh, from heaven, uh, John, go to that angel and take the scroll that's in his hand, take it out of there. It's an imperative, go and take. Now, remember Daniel last Sunday? How frightening he is just to be in the presence of an angel? Much less walk up to him and say, give me that book. That'd take a lot of courage, wouldn't it? But that was the command. Wonder how John felt. Verse 9, so I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. By the, word, by the way, the word sweet in Greek, you know that one too. It's the word glucose, which means we, that's another Greek word and it's made its way into English. It just simply means sweet. And he said, the angel said, take this little scroll and eat it. Now, was that literal? Yeah, it appears to be. No other reason we shouldn't take it literal, right? It's one of the principles. So he took it and he devoured. Now, the word doesn't mean just nibble. It means he gulped it down. You remember another time that happened in the Bible? Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3. God gave him, here's a reference to the Old Testament again. God gave Ezekiel a, a, a prophecy and said, eat this son of man, eat it. And he said, I ate it and digested it. And it was sweet but bitter. We've done that before. You've, had, you've eaten meals before where it tastes good, and then later on your stomach's like, oh, it didn't taste too good. That's what happened with, 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 it, with uh, John. It tasted good in his mouth, so, but was later bitter. So some people interpret that to mean, well, judge, or it looks good for Christians for a while, but at the end it doesn't. So because of this phrase, there are some theologians that believe that we as Christians are going to have to go through all the tribulation to the very end because it's bitter in the end. Well, we don't know that. That's just it's interpretation. But that's why some believe that we are going to be to the end. So he took this and he, and he ate it. Verse 10, And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And then, well, first of all, what was in that scroll, do you think? What was, in, what was written in there? All kind of theories. One theory is uh, what was contained in the scroll was chapter 11 that we're going to look at next week, Revelation 11. Maybe, because it comes forth next. 
Um, another theory is that it was the rest of Revelation, chapter 11 through 22, is the rest of the book. Maybe. That's possible. Others believe it was a special message to the church. Boy, that's eisegesis. We don't see that anywhere. But that's, you hear that a lot from, oh, that's a special message to the church that God gives to us. That, uh, that's, that's a lot of speculation, I think. But another theory is that it was the Old Testament. That he ate the Old Testament and then, because you see it coming forth a lot, especially in chapter 11. We don't know what the scroll contained, but I would say most Bible scholars probably believe it contains the rest of Revelation or the next chapter, chapter 11. So he ate it, was bitter in his stomach, in verse 11, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So, so get the picture now before we close tonight. John, he's, been, he's just been an observer. He's pushed to the middle of the arena. Now everybody's watching him. He walks over to the angel. He, now he participates. He eats it. And now he's the one about to start prophesying. John, not the angel. Not Jesus. John. John's about to start prophesying. And the whole world's involved. Every, all the peoples and nations and languages and kings. And then an angel walked up and gave John something. He gave him a measuring stick. And that's where we'll pick up next week in chapter 11. He starts to measure heaven. It gets really interesting when he does. One last thought, we'll close. I want you to notice something. Remember the seven-year tribulation? It began with, in chapter 5 with Jesus taking a scroll and breaking the seals. Now we're to the halfway point of the tribulation, right? Three and a half years in. And the second half of the tribulation, how does it begin? With the scroll being ingested. So the tribulation begins with the scroll, and the second half of it begins with the scroll. So now we're going to see the last three and a half years and the following chapters, what's going to happen at the very end. Well, we're a minute and 15 seconds over, so we don't have time for questions or comments. If you have any questions, I'll be up here afterwards, or you can email me. I'll be glad to respond to them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word tonight, for what you teach us through Revelation. God's a fascinating book. And Lord, I just pray tonight, knowing that you are in control and nothing will ever cause you to be out of control. So Lord, I thank you and praise you that in Christ we have the victory over death and hell and evil. So thank you for that victory tonight. Help us to walk in victory even this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.